In 2008, she became chief curator of Museum Reina Sofia in Madrid, where she shaped the institution's program and exhibitions for four years. She has also been frequent contributor to many major publications, including Artscribe, Art in America, Art Monthly, Burlington Magazine, and has lectured at the University College London, Yale University, Columbia University, and the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College. Throughout her career, Cook has authored a number of art books, such as Blinky Palermo, Retrospective, 1964 to 1977, which accompanied her exhibition for Dear Art Foundation, and which toured to the Hirjon Museum. Her recent exhibition, Rosemary Troco, A Cosmos, was curated by Cook in collaboration with Rosemary Troco, and shown at the Museum Reina Sofia Madrid and the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York. Let's welcome Lynn Cook, who will introduce her panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Milena, for that very kind introduction. As um, Milena said, this is a very special night. I'm, I'm very pleased to have my colleagues, John Beardsley, Thomas Lacks, and Massimiliano Gioni here, because each of them has helped shape the debate around the interface between uh, modern contemporary art and the art liar, the uh, self-taught, the naive, the visionary, and the outsider. And as Milena said, this is a subject with great currency at the moment, not least because of Massimiliano's Biennale in Venice uh, last summer, but it's, um, it's, it's a dynamic that has a long history in this country as well as in Europe. And in this country it stems back to the teens when vanguard artists like Elie Nadelman and Marston Hartley were um, discovering 19th century folk art which they um, collected and subsequently uh, which impacted their work stylistically and formally. There have been significant moments across the 20th century in which this particular exchange has come to the fore, beginning in the mid-20s, running through the programs at the Museum of Modern Art, which included the first self-taught monographic show, an exhibition of William Edmondson's work in 1937, also the first time the Museum of Modern Art showed work by an African-American artist. And it runs through the 60s and 70s, which again is a very intense period that culminates in the landmark show from 1982 called Black Folk Art uh, in America, 1930 to 1980, which was co-curated by John and Jane Livingston, John Beardsley and Jane Livingston. And I've asked John to begin the discussion tonight by talking about that exhibition. And he will be followed by Thomas Lax from the Studio Museum, who's working on a show that opens on March 26th, which brings together professional artists and self-taught artists in the um, post-civil civil rights movement era, the last 50 years from approximately 1963 at the Studio Museum. And Thomas will talk about that exhibition and how those uh, two distinct strands of art making practice come together in his thinking. And then Massimil Miss, excuse me, Massimiliano will talk about the Venice Biennale. After that, we will have a discussion amongst ourselves for a bit and then open 
open the um, discussion to questions from the floor. So thank you, and John will begin. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. And I must say I'm delighted to be back at the Hirshhorn. The Hirshhorn, um, um, well, I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but they hired me right out of college, my first curatorial job, and uh, allowed me to do my first uh, exhibition on my own, a show about land art, um, on which I've dined out ever since. Uh, and uh, they also published my first exhibition catalog. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to the Hirshhorn, and I'm happy to be back and repay it in some small measure. Um, Lynn asked me to talk about black folk art in America, the exhibition I organized with Jane Livingston at the Corcoran Gallery of Art here in Washington in 1982. Um, it was, I, I worked on this exhibition before I did any graduate studies in art history, so I have to admit to some theoretical and methodological naivete in connection with the show, uh, about which more in a minute. Um, but I did go on to investigate uh, the field of visionary folk outsider art in a great deal more detail in my graduate studies um, at the University of Virginia. Um, my PhD dissertation resulted in this book, Gardens of Revelation. It's, as you see from the subtitle, about environments by visionary artists. So it gave me the opportunity to explore what happened to visionary art when it moved outdoors and into a, into a larger scale. Um, and it made me attentive to the many uh, 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 social and cultural contexts out of which this art emerges. Uh, I also, uh, so for example, the book includes a discussion of works, uh, sort of well-known works of uh, environmental outsider art, like Sam Rodia's Watts Towers in Los Angeles, or the amazing uh, Ideal Palace by the postman Ferdinand Chauval uh, near uh, Lyon in France. Um, this was done in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, a place beloved of the Surrealists and then subsequently of the Situationists, and this is the Situationist author Guy Dubourg visiting the Palais Ideal. Um, I then went on to look into some of the uh, sort of European sources of outsider art in this exhibition for the Katona Museum of Art, uh, done, in, in, done uh, in collaboration with Roger Cardinal, and that introduced me to um, the origins of the concept of the outsider, especially in, in the work of uh, the mentally ill. And the exhibition included a lot of work from the Princehorn Collection, the fabulous collection of art collected from uh, uh, psychiatric institutions across the German-speaking world, especially between about 1919 and 1922. And then I, um, again with Jane Livingston, and in this instance a curator from the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Alvia Wardlaw, um, I worked on a, a topic much more aligned with conventional definitions of folk art, uh, the Quilts of G's Bend, which opened at uh, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Uh, and traveled for five years. And so, um, what I say here about the Black Folk Art Exhibition is in part summoned from not very trustworthy memory and in part filtered through this subsequent experience I've had with the various other aspects of, of folk and outsider art. Um, so what was black folk art in America? It was an exhibition of 20 mostly elderly, mostly rural, mostly self-taught black artists, or entirely self-taught black artists. Um, it uh, opened with a room full of uh, the work of Bill Trailer, uh, someone who had been uh, uh, born a slave in the 1850s and who took up art making when living on the streets of Montgomery in his, in his 80s. 
uh, and paired with Trailer's work was the uh, astonishing work of William Edmondson, who Lynn mentioned was uh, the, uh, the first African-American artist to have a solo exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, so the trailer works included familiar themes of trailers, the drinker, uh, animals, uh, hunting scenes, hunting scenes that seem to be um, reminiscent of rural life, but in some ways uh, are, are much more deeply coded, as recent research has, by Mika Sobel has suggested. Uh, Edmondson's work included angels, owls, uh, and this uh, Noah's Ark. There was a selection of elements from James Hampton's uh, Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly, uh, which is in a, uh, was made in a rented garage here in Washington and discovered upon Hampton's death in 1964. Uh, we had recreated a, a sense of Sister Gertrude Morgan's everlasting gospel mission. She was a kind of self-styled street preacher and dressed as the Bride of Christ in white, and her whole house was white. So we tried to evoke a sense of her environment, um, showing her art in an entirely white room. An idea that I used again in an exhibition I did for the Phillips Academy in Andover uh, some uh, in more recent years. Uh, the show also included work by um, the uh, Columbus, Ohio barber, Elijah Pierce, who uh, did, uh, has done a whole series of biblically themed reliefs. Uh, the work of Leslie Payne, who worked in the fishing fleets in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, and who also had an environment dedicated to flight, and some of these elements from his environment after his death were, were salvaged uh, by collectors and were included in the exhibition. The exhibition included the work of Nellie Mae Rowe, a housekeeper um, from Atlanta, who tells you here her house is clean enough to be healthy and dirty enough to be happy. <laughs> the visionary landscapes of uh, Joseph Yoakum, uh, a Chicago artist who uh, traveled widely in his imagination and painted the landscapes he visited there. Um, the sometimes bawdy sculpture of Steve Ashby, an artist from Virginia who worked with salvaged, woods, salvaged wood and rescued clothing, uh, and elements of, um, of uh, the yard show of, of David Butler, uh, including this winged creature with gourd and uh, this walking stick with a cutout figure. Um, these were sort of had a kind of prophylactic uh, purpose on his house. They were uh, filters to keep out unwanted influence. So um, that was roughly what was in the show. Um, the, um, we received challenges from all quarters about the categories we used, especially black art and folk art, the two main categories we used. Um, for, we got questions from folklorists about our use of the term folk, because in conventional academic understanding, folk art is something passed down from generation to generation, more or less unchanged, and typically refers to things like blacksmithing, quilting, basket making, and so forth. So um, uh, in, for, for strict folklorists, the idea of folk and art are sort of contradictory, because art in, in modern understanding implies imagination, and folk implies continuity. So, um, uh, uh, so um, we were criticized for, for describing this as folk art, uh, when what we were really stressing, they thought, was the imaginative quality. 
Um, but there were definite folk elements to it. That is to say, there, was, there were elements of this work that came out of folk traditions. William Edmondson, uh, who was a hospital orderly um, by employment, um, was carved gravestones uh, as, a, as, a, um, uh, as a side business. And so there was a link to specific African-American traditions of more memorialization and burial here. Um, likewise, in Elijah Pierce's work, um, he used these uh, uh, carvings to a kind of evangelical purpose. He would go to uh, revivals and, and preach, like Sister Gertrude Morgan, using these carvings as a way of illustrating his sermons. So there were specific links to, um, to cultural traditions within uh, um, African-American culture um, that I think um, that I think did situate it, at least in, in, uh, in, in the, situated to some extent in the context of, of folk art. Although we were trying to have it both ways by saying this is also very imaginative as art. Um, we were also criticized for using the terminology black art. And um, this is perhaps best illustrated by um, a visit that Dorothy Gilliam paid to the exhibition. She was then writing for the Washington Post and was married to the painter Sam Gilliam. Uh, before the show opened, she came and challenged us by, by saying, why are you showing uh, the, the art of these naive, self-taught people as opposed to academically trained black artists? Aren't you, uh, aren't you um, uh, deriding um, black culture by saying it's sort of folksy and down home? Um, and instead of honoring, you know, sort of educated, academically trained black artists. Um, so our response to that was, yes, there's an issue about not showing black artists in mainstream institutions, but please come see the show and then tell us what you think. And she ended up being um, very sympathetic to, or very interested in the work that was in the show. So, um, and the critique against us was probably most forcefully uh, uh, expressed in an essay by Jean Metcalf in the Winterthur Portfolio called uh, Black Art, Folk Art, and Social Control. And I think you can tell from the title where he went with the essay. Uh, basically, he's saying that categories like black art and folk art are hegemonic, they're hierarchical, they're ways of affirming the um, supremacy of a sort of white culture and academic culture uh, by uh, showing you the, the less capable other. So um, those were the, uh, the, the, those were the um, main critiques. Um, the the um, things we were not so criticized for at the time, but which in retrospect um, might have been our most serious sin of omission, was um, being not sufficiently attentive to the sort of historical and cultural contexts out of which this art came. We paid some attention to it, but not enough. Um, in, in our defense, I would say that um, this was fairly characteristic of the way this art was treated at the time. And no artist has been more misunderstood in this regard, and this is my final point, um, no artist has been more misunderstood in this regard than, than James Hampton, who made this astonishing setting for The Last Judgment. Um, out of salvaged furniture and gold and silver foil and light bulbs and vases and so forth. Um, 
Hampton records visions uh, on uh, labels that are attached to some of the objects here. Um, and on the basis of these, this uh, testimony to visions, he was posthumously diagnosed as psychotic and included in, in, in uh, books about uh, the art, art of the mentally ill. But Hampton wasn't psychotic. Um, he came out of, uh, of a tradition, um, as I learned subsequently in working on the G's Bend exhibition, he came out of a tradition where testimony to vision was a requirement for membership in church. So that in some churches you had to say, you had to report the visions you'd had in order to be accepted into the congregation. So Hampton came out of that tradition. He also came out of a tradition that Linda Hartigan has uh, ex explained. Um, his, his father was an itinerant preacher, and he came out of a tradition of, of what's called premillennial dispensationalism, uh, which held that the time was divided into seven epochs or dispensations. We're in the last dispensation, and we need to get ready for the last judgment. So that's what he was doing, based on the precepts of premillennial dispensationalism. He was making a setting for the last judgment. He was testifying to religious visions, which in the eyes of the sort of psychiatric community or the mainstream art world uh, made him uh, 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 sort of crazy, but he wasn't. Um, so what we... Um, so we may not have been as attentive to um, all these sort of historical or cultural contexts as we could have been, but I think we did do one thing very well, which was to affirm the value and importance of this work as art. And uh, the, I return to the um, uh, catalog cover of the first edition at, as a way of underlining this, because uh, the first edition of the book didn't have any type on the, on the cover. And uh, it was our way of saying this work needs to be recognized as art and celebrated as art and not, uh, uh, not defaced in any way. So we left the, as a sort, of, uh, a sort of subtle gesture to this, we left the type off the cover. That's it. Thank you. Hello everyone, my name is Thomas Lax and I'm an assistant curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem. It's really a pleasure to be here tonight at the Hirshhorn and I wanted to say first of all, it's really a humbling honor to be in conversation with Lynn, John and Massimiliano. Um, thank you for the invitation. Um, thank you to um, Joanne Gold and Andrew Stern, um, as well as Kevin Hull and Milena for um, all of your help getting me here and making sure everything is running. Um, it's uh, an honor to be speaking in conversation tonight. So I will be uh, speaking about an exhibition I'm organizing at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which as many of you already know, is an institution that displays, collects, and interprets works of art by artists of African descent, locally, nationally, and globally. Titled When the Stars Begin to Fall, Imagination in the American South, the exhibition opens in March and will be on view through June. This exhibition is my attempt to publicly and collaboratively think through the category of outsider art, which I'm using as an umbrella term to describe work produced by incarcerated artists, religiously inspired artists, and self-taught artists. Within an African-American context, the category has historically been linked through exhibitions and scholarship, both to the South and to Christian and syncretic religious practices in the New World. 
This exhibition, then, situates work by self-taught artists within the field of black cultural production, including non-artists and professionally trained artists alike, through three key points of intersection. First of all, what it means to be self-taught or trained in a discipline outside of the visual arts, such as performance or political activism, but working within the context of a museum. Second of all, the political potential and implications of religious, or more specifically, visionary inspiration. And thirdly, the role of the American South and its place within our national identity and the construction of racial belonging. Examined together, the exhibition looks historically, bringing together works made primarily between 1964 and the present to understand the stakes of outsider art in our moment. The category of outsider art has been central to imagining the idea of a black aesthetic. At the beginning of the 20th century, during the Harlem Renaissance, intellectual energy began to mount around the necessity of coordinating black cultural production. In this moment, both self-taught artists and African art were used as sites of origin, linchpins for arguing for or against the necessity of a black aesthetic by thinkers black and white, such as Alan Locke and Cyril K. Scott. The polemics around the idea of a black aesthetic have continued for intellectuals since its articulation in the 1920s through the post-war period in the 1960s and into the multiculturalist moment of the 1990s. These debates about the existence of a quintessential or true black aesthetic have invoked the category of outsider art, but they have also engaged related aesthetic tensions. Primitivism versus modernism, abstraction versus figuration, essentialism versus intersectionality. In other words, whether or not there are a set of attributes, for example, suffering or freedom striving, that are intrinsic to black identity. Recently, scholars and curators have gone to compelling lengths to recast what were at an earlier moment die-hard lines between these categories, suggesting that what once seemed incommensurable, a process of experimentation and black traditionalism, racial authenticity and abstraction, can make surprising alliances. This is the work that I take up here. The exhibition that I'm organizing began in close conversation with dance maker Ralph Lemon, who worked for nearly 10 years with a sharecropper turned gardener turned art collaborator Walter Carter after they met in Little Yazoo, Mississippi, where Carter spent all 102 years of his life. Ralph's experience transitioning from the performance stage to the Delta region to the White Cube Gallery, he organized a dance series at MoMA last fall, are important to me not only because he is in his own way a self-taught artist, if not an outsider, but also because he has worked with multiple non-artists throughout the South. During the remainder of my remarks this evening, I will play a 2000, 2001 performance, which Ralph calls a counter-memorial, made at the famous Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, the site of the Bloody Sunday conflict in 1965, when armed officers attacked peaceful civil rights demonstrators, attempting to march to the state capitol in Montgomery. As you will see, Ralph's counter-memorial juxtaposes the spectacular history of this site with its mundane contemporary usage, using both his body and black music culture to literally bridge the gap between its past and present. Ralph has kept time, both historical and geological, in my working relationship with him. It seems fitting that he would be here in this way tonight. So this is what you're seeing on the right. In selecting works for When the Stars Begin to Fall, I have looked to academically trained artists who invoke the figure of the self-taught artist, and more fundamentally, do so to, march, to mark their own search for origins. Consider painter Carrie James Marshall's 2009 Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein on your left. These two large-scale acrylic on PVC figurative paintings. 
Named, of course, after Mary Shelley's 1818 Gothic novel of the same title, Marshall's coal-skinned protagonists are transposed into his artistic narrative. Locating them within an interior domestic space, the artist incorporates the painting's captions, as you can see on the left and right, respectively, within their visual fields, as if to suggest the nude figures are part of an archive or a museum of aesthetic types that might include 19th century American romantic literature, 1970s American B-movie horror kitsch, and the conventions and erotics of academic life drawing all at once. It could be argued that the flattened space of his figures draw on the pictorial strategies associated with self-taught artists, for whom Marshall, in a reference to black folk art in America, has said the following. For me and other artists I know, we look at vernacular work as a way of trying to get to something that supports the idea of a black aesthetic. Is there something more genuine, authentic, or true about the work these artists produce? Beyond Marshall's own articulation, what interests me about these paintings is the way he directs the idea of authenticity or original black aesthetics to the figure of Frankenstein's man-made monster. Amalgamating European science fiction and a southern Gothic sensibility into a metaphor for domination and rebellion, Marshall centers the importance of the creation myth genre as a genre and underscores the power dynamics of violence and sexuality that structures these various Genesis narratives. In a very different way, artist Kara Walker takes on the idea of her origins and the role of fantasy, the South, and the mythology of the self-taught artist in her video, Eight Possible Beginnings or the Creation of African America, a moving picture by the young self-taught genius of the South, K.E. Walker from 2005. In this shadow puppet work, which includes the artist's silhouette and which she considers a performance, the viewer bears witness to eight fabulations that narrate the beginning of African American life in the New World. Through her signature sense of irony, Walker's title allows her to humorously take on the character of the self-taught artist, both embracing this figure as an exception, an individual without a context or community. The moving picture makes direct reference to various African-American Southern folk storytelling traditions, from Uncle Remus and Br'er Rabbit, both celebrating them with a sense of romance and situating them within a global set of origin narratives, narrating the beginning of the world from a watery nothing through a hero's quest for self. While Marshall and Walker's citations and invocations of the self-taught artist are different in affect, hers perhaps more irrever irreverent and his a seemingly earnest but quizzically open-ended amalgamation of various sign systems, they nonetheless share a marked sense of hyperbole, excess, and exaggeration. The space of dreams, fantasy, and revelation is political space. And here I mean political both on the grand scale of history and revolutions, as well as political as, the kinds of, as in the kinds of cultural acts that can take place in one's home. Known for his full-bodied and immersive installations and performances, Rodney McMillan transforms A Walk in the Woods into a narrative of intrigue and attenuated violence with a good dose of humor in his 2012 video, A Song for Nat. The video's reference to historical events resonates with Macmillan's earlier work, sculptures and installations in which stained, deteriorated pieces of furniture often bear the evidence of anonymous personal histories. Using his own body to reenact a historical moment, A Song for Nat is both a tribute to and a reimagination of an 1831 rebellion led by Nat Turner, an enslaved man from Virginia. Turner, a deeply religious person, believed that he received messages from God via visions and signs in nature. Shortly before the uprising, Turner witnessed a solar eclipse, which he interpreted as a sign to begin his insurrection. Turner's connection with nature is reflected in the lush opening scenes of Macmillan's video. 
The first moments of the video take place in the landscape, in a verdant forest buzzing with wildlife that situates the video in the humid environment of the Mississippi Delta. McMillan appears wearing a hazmat student mask and wielding an axe. Suspense grows as he walks through the woods towards the big house, a white manor that bears both a cliched and real sense of power. After he circles the home and weathers a severe sun thunderstorm, the implied violence of the past scenes never materializes. Leaving the audience with an acute sense of unease, McMillan's work replicates the emotional and sensory responses associated with the uprising. His performance of a modern Turner contem uh, contemplates the legacy of the rebellion while bracketing the contemporary sensorium that stems from the institution Turner fought against. Since the late 1980s, Patricia Satterway has made pencil drawings on computer paper. This is supposed to be happening. We're shifting so you guys can see um, what is the incredibly precise graphite of Satterwhite's drawings. Her schematic drawings for fantastical, often libidinal consumer goods include flying lawn ornaments, picket fences with kickstands, and penises with drumsticks. Working from her home outside Columbia, South Carolina, to which she has been restricted since her diagnosis with mental illness, Satterwhite targets her objects for commercial production and sale on popular television stations, such as the Home Shopping Network and QVC. Her collection of 2,000 works now comprises a veritable archive that her son, Jacoby Satterwhite, has referenced, retraced, and reused in his videos, performances, prints, installations, which have been presented at international contemporary art exhibitions, gay bars, and clubs, and on the street. Satterway, Patricia Satterway, hyperbolizes everyday objects, rendering fireplaces portable and adorning white picket fences with diamonds, for example. In so doing, she queers their meaning and engages critically with ideas of consumption, maternity, and the construction of the American household. Her diagrammatic depictions are composed of webs of intersecting lines that render three-dimensional subjects in two dimensions. Annotating these objects with text, she creates graphic instructions that are fantastical yet matter-of-fact, a chair with a compact disc holding shelf, or an extra-large art-carrying case. Her drawings resemble schematic plans and functions as blueprints for an un yet unrealized world. I imagine and expect that I will be called out for being a fake, a performance art curator in a brick and mortar collecting institution, a collector of outsider art, a curator of outsider art, working with professionally trained artists, many of whom show in blue chip galleries, a Harlemite, albeit with southern origins, making a show about a place from a geographic remove. Yet this project is precisely about the continued allure and pull of narratives of originality and authenticity, even as they prove to be illusory and dead-ended. From my position, working in what is ostensibly a contemporary art museum in Harlem committed both to black artists and to black culture, it seems to me that narratives of authenticity and belonging, both biographic and artistic, that structure the relationship of outsider art to the art world are the same issues that continue to situate artists of color more generally. This relationship is not only one of an analogy, I'm going to continue a little bit after Ralph, if you don't mind, um, very quickly. Uh, artists of color have a similar history of acceptance, incorporation, investment, and inc exclusion as outsider artists, but more fundamentally, one of imbrication. As I've attempted to demonstrate, for many, the terms of inclusion for professionally trained artists of color are um, constituted by their association with self-taught artists of all origins. Whether they are considered and contextualized based on their proximity to the real, real suffering and the possibility of real salvation, as opposed to the symbolic and aesthetic, or whether they are denied the status of contemporaneity, relegated to the caskets of history as institutions refuse to work with artists in considered engagement until they have passed away. 
By way of conclusion, I'd like to offer that the meaning, the terms, and the possibility of our cultural work, regardless or rather in fact of the maker's biography, is in informed by space and cultural geography. Even if it is imagined or fantastical, the spirit of place shapes our shared stakes in what we see, feel, and interpret. Sidestepping what an authentic black aesthetic might look like, I'm more interested in how a black space might be built. While a black aesthetic has historically had clear insides and outsides, black space can perhaps be more porous, making room for black artists who might not necessarily identify as artists or even as black. In looking at the spaces artists have constructed for themselves, Marshall's museum-like array of cultural types, Walker's shadow puppet theater, Macmillan's phantasmagoric southern derive, or Satterwhite's archive of erotic commercial objects, the self-motivated and artist-driven interpretations of museums and prosceniums are most urgent. How can we as curators construct institutions that collaborate with the work that has already been done? Thank you. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you, Milena, for the invitation, and thank you, Lynn. Uh, I think this is our fourth panel on this topic together, so I'm, I'm particularly thankful for Lynn's patience. And um, since it's the fourth time that we discuss this, it, it reminded me of a joke of the um, a mental patient in the mental hospital that uh, is secluded in his cell and he starts knocking on the door and he calls the doctor and the nurse and he says, careful, you locked yourself inside. And, um, you know, irony aside, I think this discussion uh, reminds me of another story uh, of uh, actually is Gilles Deleuze quoting Michel Foucault at the end of his uh, introduction on a very strange book, uh, Le Schizo and the, the Schizo and the Language, by Louis Wolfson, and, and Deleuze says, uh, we should ask the schizophrenic to tell us about the doctor. Uh, and he's quoting Foucault, who says, we should uh, learn from madness something about the institution rather than about the patient. And, and I think maybe this interest that uh, from different directions is emerging uh, towards, let's say, outsider art, to use a, an awful um, label, um, is maybe a, a, an attempt for, let's say, mainstream culture to um, learn and question um, the limits or, or the borders of our discipline or, or our, our practice that we call uh, contemporary art. Uh, what, what I'm showing here, and they're just sort of going randomly, are images from uh, the Venice Biennale, which I curated last year. Um, the Biennale was titled The Encyclopedic Palace, and uh, you'll see the image of the palace later on, but it's the image that, that was also reproduced on the invite uh, for this evening. Um, and I will actually start from that particular object uh, that was created by Marino Auriti. Uh, the choice of titling an event such as the Venice Biennale after uh, the work of a self-taught artist uh, was not just a polemical gesture, but I thought was also um, a, a, a choice that somehow encapsulated some of the ideas that uh, guided me in um, the organization of uh, this exhibition. Marino Auriti was an Italian-American artist. Uh, it's not the reason why I chose him, because I am Italian-American. 
at this point. And he was, uh, I mean, actually, I'm not even sure if he was an artist. He was a car mechanic uh, who, in his uh, free time, whatever that is, uh, and I think uh, often the definition of who's inside and outside has to do with the use of time. And so it's uh, uh, probably a, a crucial question in that sense. So Marino Ritt, in his free time, built um, mostly two objects. He painted, and then he built the model for a church, and he built the model for the Encyclopedic Palace. Uh, in his um, uh, plans, the Encyclopedic Palace would have been built in Washington, D.C., actually, and I don't know if we should be thankful for the fact that he wasn't built, or, or we should be sad for uh, the fact that he wasn't built. It was meant to be 136 floors tall. Um, it would have occupied 16 blocks, and it would have uh, measured 400 feet. Uh, strangely enough, it, it resembles uh, a, a lot of uh, totalitarian architecture from uh, the former Eastern Bloc, and in, in that sense, I think Auriti also captures something very special about Washington that uh, sometimes can look a little like Moscow, and uh, um, you know, particularly when you look sort of towards the west from the Hirschhorn Museum at sunset, uh, there is a, a Kremlin-like shape in some of the buildings, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not falling into Auriti's visions, but I think it's uh, it's quite an interesting um, analogy that he captured. Uh, in the choice of the title of the Encyclopedic Palace, I wanted to point to four main um, arguments of, of my exhibition. First of all, uh, that the show would have had a, a relatively tight theme, and uh, I had, you know, most of my thinking about exhibitions is reactive. I, I try to grasp what exhibitions look like at a certain moment in time and try to react against them. I, I say that I make the shows that I want to see or the shows that I haven't seen in a while. And um, when it comes to Biennial, for a long time, my experience was that the title was sort of slapped on, on a show and it didn't have much to do uh, with the exhibition. And so I set out myself the challenge to, to try and do a theme exhibition on the scale of a Biennial and trying to be, as much as I could, rigorous in developing Developing uh, that theme. The theme was, to, to simplify uh, very simply, was the, the quest for knowledge, uh, the desire for omniscience, and uh, um, the adventure of knowledge, and particularly the adventure of knowledge uh, through images. Um, secondly, <clears throat> by choosing Auriti's uh, uh, object and Auriti's uh, title for the entire exhibition, I wanted immediately to signal that this particular edition of the Venice Biennale wouldn't have been just about the art of today. It would have had a, a sort of historical breadth. And in fact, the show uh, started, the, the first slide you've seen was uh, a book that was uh, illustrated by Carl Gustav Jung, um, a book that he started in 1913. So the show unraveled or, or sort of zigzagged across history from 1913 until uh, 2013. And, and so the, one of the crucial elements in the show was this notion of anachronism and continuous fractures um, in the narrative uh, by juxtaposing different um, works from different historical times or from different time zones. Um, also, the, the, the choice of title in the exhibition after Auriti immediately signaled that the exhibition would have not only included the work of professional artists, as is often expected by uh, the Venice Biennale, but would also include the work of dilettantes, of so-called outsiders, of people that 
like us, uh, traffic in images. That was, I think, the main premise there. <clears throat> the exhibition was not an exhibition of artists. Uh, maybe it was not even an exhibition of artworks. It was an exhibition of images and people who spend their life making images, um, loving images, keeping images, and, and organizing images. Um, more importantly, the, the model of this biennial was actually that of the museum. I wanted to make a show uh, that was happening in a biennial, but that used the visual grammar of museums. And, and that means a few things. It means, for example, that the extended labels uh, were uh, particularly researched. And uh, uh, I think I was actually pretty proud because it was, in a long time, the first Venice Biennial that had <laughs> bilingual extended labels. It meant um, that, uh, for example, uh, in the distribution of spaces, uh, very few rooms were devoted to individual artists. Uh, my experience with biennials, not just in Venice, and, I, and I, I don't mean to be critical necessarily of the work of my predecessors or colleagues, but the usual experience of space in biennials is one artist per room. And uh, I think you know, that's usually the death of curating. I, I say as a joke that curating starts at two, when you have two people in the same room and, and you uh, create a dialogue between uh, their works. And also, uh, building, an building a biennial as a museum meant that, for example, there were more uh, examples of this type of hanging rather than the interactive, spectacular uh, gestures that uh, have become so typical of uh, uh, the biennialization of the world, or what Peter Schelder has called the uh, festivalism of biennials. Uh, as I say before, I was thinking of this show um, as a museum, and particularly as a museum of images or of image making. Um, in a way, this biennial was the second chapter of another biennial that I had organized in 2010 uh, in Kwangju, uh, and uh, in South Korea. And uh, it was a continuation on, uh, of my own research on image making and, let's say, image consumption. In Kwangju, the, the main thesis of the show was the relationship between people and images. And in Venice, instead, I was trying to develop a research on images as tools of knowledge, uh, both as tools of self-expression Exploration. So particularly the central pavilion, the images you have seen so far, um, dealt with artists who were using images to know themselves. So self-portraiture was very prominent in, uh, in this section of the Biennale. Um, the location of image within our bodies, uh, and, and as such, the idea of visions, hallucinations, um, examples of possessions by images. So various uh, case studies of uh, uh, people who have claimed to have carried images on within themselves or have seen the images uh, within themselves. So uh, particularly the central pavilion was an exploration of the realm of the imaginary, um, whereas the Arsenale, which is this uh, very large uh, space uh, um, that used to be uh, where boats were built in Venice, which I transformed with the help of architect Annabel Seldorf in a much more uh, museum-like space. Uh, the, the Arsenale is a very cavernous space, uh, a space that lends itself to a sort of kitsch monumentality, and instead I wanted to, to neutralize it and, and turn it more into a museum. So in the Arsenale, the, uh, the, the works were um, uh, collected, so to speak, uh, and they were brought together under the rubric of, uh, let's say, the, the realm of the visible. So in, in that context, uh, uh, most of the works and the images and, uh, and the artworks were looking at um, the use of images to, to organize our experience of the world and, uh, and the sort of 
marvelous uh, discovery of the world uh, through uh, images. A couple of books where, um, you know, when, when I work on shows, I, I tend to, um, I create reading groups with my team. You know, it's also important that to keep in mind that, that these adventures and exhibitions in general are collective endeavor, that, that you don't do a biennial on your own. And, and particularly for Venice, I tried to put together a research team and, and uh, to, to bring, uh, to, to create a sort of uh, reading club that developed uh, throughout uh, the exhibitions. And a few books were uh, very important for the shows, in particular one, uh, in general, the writings of Hans Belting, and particularly his most recent book translated in English called Anthropology of Image. Uh, which, uh, you know, many of these books I approach, uh, maybe not systematically enough, but I approach them as tools that give me license to do what I'm trying to do. And, and particularly Belting's book, Anthropology of Image, was quite liberating and encouraging in uh, developing an idea of an exhibition that uh, did away with the distinction of art and non-art, and, and the look at figurative expressions and looked, as, uh, and looked at image making rather than uh, art making. Uh, Belting in this book writes um, about, uh, first of all he says something very banal, but as all banalities quite shocking, he says the first locus of images are our bodies. The first medium of images is our body. Before TV, before computers, before the screen, uh, inside us there are images and we are inhabited by images. And he also says that humans are probably the only animals who um, think and communicate in images. You know, we've been used uh, throughout uh, a, a, a large portion of the last century to define the, the human animal as the animal who uses language, uh, but if you think carefully there are different animals who use language as a communication tool, but images it seems uh, we are the only animals to, to, who are able to make them and, and to communicate through them. And um, another very important book, which unfortunately is still not translated in English, and I think that betrays a, a, a certain skepticism towards it. It's a book by Régis Debray uh, titled The Life and Death of Images. And uh, in this book, Debray sets out to answer a very simple, basic, and also terrifying question. He asks himself, why are there images instead of nothing? Why do humans make images and, uh, uh, instead of uh, nothing? Um, this is now you're entering the, the, the arsenale. Um, this reflection on images, I, I thought, um, hinted on to two fundamental problems. One, I think, is this desire that humans have of making images, and I believe we make them, and I'm not the first one to say it, because uh, it's uh, the way we come to terms with mortality. Uh, you know, the myth of the birth of painting, as narrated by Plinius, uh, is a myth of love. Uh, a, a lover uh, is about to be left by her lover, and uh, so she traces the profile of her lover on, uh, on the wall with the help of um, a candle. and. Uh, so painting is born as an attempt to keep the people we love uh, with us. And um, on the other hand, the exhibition was trying to come to terms with the proliferation of images as we know it today, with the explosion and inflation of images with their uh, volatility. And one of the premises of the exhibition was that, uh, after all, our digital condition in which we live in, um, 
proposes again a, a form of possession by images uh, in which uh, our bodies and, and uh, our mind are penetrated by images, images that more and more are commercially made and uh, they are made to make us do something. And um, so the exhibition set out to uh, understand, uh, and I don't know if it succeeded or not, how we have come to this inflation of images and, and what is the role of image makers, whether they are artists or not, uh, when we are faced with such an inflation. You know, I think uh, professional artists, unfortunately, are forced in a minority uh, position when it comes to the making of images today. I think uh, the making of images that colonize our uh, visual experience is often uh, left out to, to commercial um, uh, intentions and, and artists occupy a smaller smaller place in the industry of um, image making. Um, in fact, the, the Arsenale was organized uh, as a progression from natural forms to artificial forms. Uh, uh, so it started with the artists looking at the, at the world and at natural forms and he ended uh, with uh, image makers and artists or dilettante, whatever you want to call them, uh, looking at artificial images and uh, looking at uh, digital images. This progression was actually based um, on uh, um the way in which Wunderkammer were built, and particularly uh, it was based on uh, uh, the organization of Athanasius Kircher's museum in uh, Rome, the Jesuits Museum um, in Rome. Um, and uh, um, I think this progression, in a way, allowed me to achieve uh, a, a productive confusion between artworks that are supposed to be autonomous and self-enclosed entities and artworks as documents, artworks as relics, um, or even to do away with, uh, uh, with artworks altogether and so look at images as um, uh, figurative expressions, as traces of existential and epistemological adventures, uh, blurring any distinction between professionals and amateurs. Um, a lot of the thinking behind the show, and I'm just about to, to conclude, um, was inspired by um, looking carefully at the work of uh, artist curated shows. And, and that's a, uh, you know, it took me a while also to, to, to um, as I said before, to take some liberties because I don't believe in the curator as an artist. I don't believe in, in the idea of the curator as an uh, art maker. Um, but I think uh, often by studying carefully the work of artists when they curate, I think uh, it can be very instructive in terms of uh, licenses that you can take without sidestepping uh, the boundaries of of uh, uh, the artworks, particularly uh, the work of Robert Gober as a curator, the work of Jeremy Deller as a curator, the work of uh, uh, Mike Kelly as a curator with the Uncanny, the work of uh, even Rosemary Tockel and, and Lynn Cook together in the exhibition A Cosmos. They all point to a, a refusal of the distinction of high art and low art, to use another uncomfortable uh, label. Um, and most important, I think they, they point to a refusal of matters of taste, which um, to me was one of the guiding principles of this biennial and of a series of shows that I've been doing. And uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm also aware that that could be used against me because you could say the shows look like crap because <laughs> on many levels they are not preoccupied with establishing a hierarchy of good or bad. I'm actually uh, suspicious of, uh, I think something has happened by which uh, 
hierarchies are constructed mostly in commercial spaces today, or, or uh, in which, unfortunately, the creation of hierarchies is complicit with commercial values. And so I think the responsibility of Biennals and the responsibility of museums, paradoxically, is no longer to establish canons, but is to um, destroy canons or to question canons. Uh, I started by mentioning Gilles Deleuze, and I, I'm embarrassed that in 2013 I still do, because I think we should have a moratorium on quoting Gilles Deleuze. But uh, Gilles Deleuze and Guattari developed a, a very fascinating idea of minor literature, uh, particularly writing about Kafka and his uh, refusal of writing uh, masterpieces and his devotion to writing short stories and, and an idea of literature as a minor endeavor that um, I think it's uh, particularly inspiring and fruitful today uh, as uh, the idea of the masterpiece migrates more and more towards a conservative notion of art. Uh, I think, as I say, the biennials and, and museums and curators and artists have the responsibility of uh, questioning the canon and embracing maybe uh, an idea of minor art. And I think uh, that's all. Unfortunately, I have many more images, but they can roll in the background as we speak, maybe. So thank you. begin by asking quest a question to each of you and then please break in and ask questions of each other. John, I was looking through the archives for um, Black Poker and like any show it seems to have evolved organically. And in the early correspondence it seems that you were considering including um, other material which would be called folk art, decorative objects from much earlier than the 30s, and also objects that were not authored, um, like the great Baron Samadhi that was in the Hempel Collection, which is here in DC at the Museum of American Art, and that the exhibition would have had quite a different format, therefore. Can you, t um, in the 70s, as we lead up to the exhibition, it's really clear that many of the people who are working in the area of folk art, both recent and more distant, are focusing increasingly on authors. And in the Whitney, for example, in the end of the 70s, there's a show of early American painting portraits, but only by um, artists whose names could be recognized. So you can see that the folk art world is being turned into or modeled on the contemporary art, modern art world in which authors with oeuvre are the preferred entities. And I wondered how the evolution of your exhibition um, intersects with that or not. I think it did. Um, I, I'm not sure how conscious we were of being informed by the assumptions of the contemporary art world at the time, but in retrospect I think we were. And I think we were moving away from an idea of, of, of uh, folk art or vernacular art as a, as a kind of anonymous activity and trying to situate it more in terms of the context of, um, of an identifiable artistic signature. Um, and this was what the folklorists objected to in a way, is that we were removing it from the, from the notion of of uh, anonymity and, and trying to, to relate it to, an, to um, 
a mo first of all, a modernist idea of quality and uh, that, that depended on, on ideas of invention, mm -hmm. and also to, um, uh, to, to contemporary aesthetics that, that, um, that were then in a debate with the whole notion of quality. So um, we were, um, I mean, we were affirming that this was really that this it was really good art um, by people who were identifiable and had signature styles, um, and that they were related to cultural traditions, but they w were also um, um, individual and identifiable creators. So. Um, I think that accounts for, for the move away from a sort of craft emphasis and away from earlier material and toward something that was more consciously situated in the dynamics of the contemporary art world in, in, the, in the 80s. Okay. And, and Thomas, when, in John's show, as we look at the selection of the 20s, 20 or so artists, almost all of them came from the South. Um, with the exception of Joseph Joachim and Elijah Pierce, who'd moved to Columbus. So the South, which had uh, a more rural population, maybe a more sedentary population, had been a, a very rich source of, of making for African-American self-taught artists. You talk about the South, but you're talking about it, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, as not literally just a geographical site and not a place of origins from where people were born and moved north with the Great Migration or later, but as, some, as a trope. And can you explain a little more about what the South means in your usage of it and, and more generally for all of us perhaps now as we talk about the South? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, in approaching this material, um, I, as I mentioned, kind of began working with um, a number of artists who were not necessarily trained as visual artists who were making work in the South, who were in New York and very much in the contemporary art world, but not visual artists in, in formation. And so the kind of curiosity of people like Ralph Lemon or Gia Wyeth, another young artist, or even Rodney Chameleon, who is you know, a visual artist but working in performance, um, was curious to me as a kind of organizing factor. Um, so I kind of took a step back to begin thinking about the genealogy or lineage of exhibitions of African-American self-taught artists. And of course, black folk art in America is you know, um, a pivotal um, germinal moment in terms of that, that um, that narrative, but also the kind of reception of that, the, the works that came into, um, in, you know, th through its tour to, you know, multiple sites across the country to many African-American curators and artists. And so um, while not necessarily interested in doing a kind of totally reverential reception, you know, history to say how these works kind of were seen and then were received and then kind of made their way into people's work, I was nonetheless interested in the kind of discourse and context um, that had preceded the way that the material I was looking at had trafficked, um, but not taking it necessarily on face value and seeing it really um, in some ways as a kind of projection um, or, you know, uh, a kind of fantasy and then asking what was involved in that fantasy. And it seems to me that the what's useful about this particular site is the way in which the idea of origins or origination is central in terms of, you know, um, the ways that black artists are looking to, to self-taught artists either, you know, with total um, reverence like, I, you know, like Carrie James Marshall with or a certain sense of irony like Kara Walker 
Um, but regardless of what the kind of sentiment is there, it seems like that idea of origins is something that all of us kind of share in the sense that, you know, I think that you, that one can um, look at ideas of um, the, the relationship of somebody like Tino Segal's contribution to the biennial and the way in which, um, you know, performance uh, as a kind of operation that um, can exist uh, outside of a, a mode of documentation is something in the way that he's articulated that is in some ways trying to resist an idea of an origin and I think similarly um, a kind of uh, return to painting in this moment that you know a number of the artists who are working in painting in that exhibition and others are kind of thinking through the the histories of abstraction um, in terms of where they emerge and you know historically and geographically so I I think that for me, this specific demographic um, idea of you know site and beginning and genesis is something that I've kind of myself played with as a curator, but as a way to kind of point to um, how the status of um, something that is a unique thing is something that we actually are okay with in this moment in our culture. Whereas you know, in an earlier moment in contemporary art, we you know derided the idea of something being um, an original thing or you know having a sense of aura. And so to me, that felt like a, a kind of shuttle between my set of interests and this larger field. Mesmiliano, you, um, the exhibition's been highly praised and rightly praised, I think, for the way in which you transformed those spaces into a mu museum-like environment. And as we could see from the presentation, things were hung in um, a very elegant, spacious, um, to the highest museum standards. And I wonder if there's a paradox. You're talking about these entities as images, but actually with the display mechanisms and the languages of presentation you used, you transformed everything that might not have been thought of as a work of art into a work of art. I mean, they all look like remarkable works of art. Yeah. So how do we think about them as images when in fact we're, we're kind of blown away by the fact that they look like works of art? Well, in a way that's the... the provocation of the show and um, you know I don't know if he succeeded or not but uh, on one hand there is the provocation that I was tired of biennials looking uh, like biennials <laughs> you know I think the problem you know the beauty of biennials is every two years somebody else comes and, and potentially they can be reinvented and uh, I was concerned that the format of biennials not just in Venice but it was becoming formulaic and it was sort of ossified, do you say that, in, mm -hmm. into a, a style that I was particularly um, unhappy with or that I thought was not actually leaving any space to the viewer, to the artist, to the artwork. So on one hand I wanted to um, sort of work against that and paradoxically the, the grammar of the museum becomes an innovation uh, when you display it in a space that, that has become so used to a certain kind of gesture that it's typical of Biennals. Um, then the, the other point is that the model of the museum I was looking at uh, was not necessarily um, the contemporary art museum or the modern art museum. I think, um, and as I had done already in Kwanju, in a way there is a research on um, these modes of displays that hints also to other types of museums and you know the Wunderkammer or, or anyway the um, different modes of displays that are less familiar for example they look less let's say like MoMA 
contemporary art galleries, uh, but they look more like the Met uh, metro, uh, medieval galleries, or uh, you know, they, they were, there was a profusion of vitrines, and you know, I'm sure also the problem is that type of biennial is also becoming a formula in itself, so I'm sure it'll be worked against uh, very soon. But um, you know, the, 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 the style of the display was inspired by different types of museums, and let's say the ethnographic museum. And, and in that sense, um, I want every object in the show to look great, uh, but at the same time, I don't, uh, it's a, a sort of double gesture, which I haven't been able to summarize. On one hand, there is a, an implication that all the objects in the show are not art. Uh, you know, it goes back also to authorship and, you know, I don't want the folk art to look as great as the mainstream art. I want everything to look as folk art, <laughs> in a way, uh, because that uh, paradoxically creates a new enchantment of those objects, I think. You know, it's, on one hand, it's a movement of desublimization. You, like, throw the artwork out off the pedestal and then you put everything on an equal field and, uh, and then everything will look good again, hopefully without the prejudice of the distinction between high and low art and, and between the artist and the non-artist. So I think that's, uh, and it, paradoxically, the museum effect is even more necessary because it lends a focus on those images that charges them with a, a, a new power, let's say. So I don't know if that answers the question. But. Then I'll ask one question of you generally um, before turning to the floor, because there are many people here who have questions, I think. And, and the question is, um, until recently, until your forthcoming show, or your show, Massimiliano, uh, modern and contemporary museums have um, abdicated an interest in the work of the outlier. Though this was not the case in the early 20th century, as I mentioned, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney, had um, many programs that included this work in parallel. And as I look at it historically, you could say that this moment where the Folk Art Museum or the Encyclopedic Museum takes full charge of American self-taught work in the 20th century, comes in 1995 when um, Elsa Longhauser and Harold Zeman are working on a show that's going to look at this work with European American work, and it's scuppered. And Harry Zeman takes his name off this show, and it ends up being toured across the country. It's a huge success. It's a big bonanza show that includes everyone you can think of, but under the umbrella of the American Museum of Folk Art. And that's where, effectively, this work has stayed since, and it continues to reside largely either in the encyclopedic museums like the Philadelphia Museum of Art or Museum of American, or dedicated museums. Nonetheless, um, contemporary artists once again have sort of led a charge to re-engage with this, and you have mentioned people, um, we could say Kerry James Marshall, David Hammonds, Kara Walker, many people uh, looking specifically at folk heritage in a more recuperative, if sometimes ironic ways, and then others like Mike Kelly and, say, Matt Mullican, who are looking at the image, uh, the stereotypical image of the outsider artist and probing that in a really um, acerbic way. So we have artists coming back to it, very contemporary, influential seminal artists back in, engaged with this. Are we again moving in 
um, in the wake of these artists. Is this work coming back into the um, modern contemporary museum? Should it? And on what terms? It's, um, it's probably not yet in, let's say, in the American mainstream museums. Um, which is part of the reasons why, for example, Roberta Smith keeps writing that you know curators tear the wall down. Or um, it is in other museums. I mean, I, I often mention the Reina Sofia Museum as a place where uh, different canons of history have been uh, traced. Um, I think it's. Uh, I mean, supposedly the expansion of MoMA has to do with wanting to to tell a bigger story of modernism, that it's not, you know, that the much discussed expansion of MoMA supposedly is because they, they want to open up the canon. I don't know if it will be the case or not, but certainly uh, I think also my biennial in a way is riding a wave that, that has been building up uh, and I should not take credit for having opened the doors of that dialogue because uh, in many different museums or mostly exhibitions there have been examples of that. Um, exchange or, or, or that definition becoming more and more porous. I mean, you mentioned Harald Zeman. I think for me, um, looking at his shows was very instructive again in this idea of uh, particularly his encyclopedic shows like the Monte Verità or uh, Bachelor Machines and uh, uh, Austria and a Bed of Roses or Visionary Switzerland or, or the Penchant for uh, the Total Work of Art. They, um, I don't even know if he would have agreed with that, but there was a, a freedom uh, against or beyond taste that uh, was quite interesting and liberating. You know, the idea that you could have Kandinsky, but you could also have uh, Emma Kuntz, or, or um, you know, there was a, um, a much more corrugated landscape, and it wasn't just you know the, the great masters, which I think is becoming more and more repressive as a narrative. So. Yeah, the whole question of whether something's against taste, I think, is still very much at issue. And so some of these artists are um, making it into sort of mainstream museums. So when the Museum of Modern Art reopened after their expansion, the, the, uh, the drawing galleries included work by Bill Trailer alongside, you know, uh, established modernist talents. So, and, um, and you can sort of count on one hand the... the the uh, outsider artists who who become canonical and who are accepted in the mainstream museums, Martin Ramirez, Henry Darg, or um, uh, Bill Trailer, certainly. So there there are a few who have sort of been accepted into the canons of high art. Um, but what seems to me uh, interesting and at the same time problematic about what's going on now is that the artists again are are leading the way in terms of uh, 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 um, an appreciation and an understanding of this art um, with a lot more skepticism with respect to categories. Um, and, and I say that's, a, I think on, one, on the one hand that's a good thing. I think the erosion of uh, ideas about inside and outside, high and low, good and bad, I, I mean those, challenging those categories is always good. Um, at the same time, I, I worry about um, the loss of those categories altogether, because then we just do we end up with a sort of pluralist situation where um, where everything's everything's sort of equivalent and incompletely understood. 
So I would say that some kind of categorization remains incredibly important. And it's not a matter of something being inside or outside, high or low. It's that something can occupy multiple categories at once. So can we understand something as both black and uh, outside and uh, made in a certain medium and in a certain region? I mean, how, how, how can we use categories in, the, in a way that's more synthetic and more revealing than just either high or low, either inside or outside, either folk or, or academically trained. So I think it's, the, it's, a, it's, a smarter, it's, it's a smarter deployment of those categories that maybe is at issue and, and, and needed. And, um, but, and I think if we can get from, you know, build from the skepticism that seems to be current again toward a, something that's um, sort of more constructive and synthetic than, the, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, very much what, what you guys have tried to do. Uh, and uh, so that um, seems very promising. One um, point that the kind of artistic lead around um, this material to me signals is a kind of General, a generalized way in which artists have operated as either collectors or as curators, um, kind of taking on the function of the curatorial, which to me it signals a kind of crisis of history in a way, the sense, you know, the, the sense of um, a kind of recuperation of something that has been lost to history, which would be the task of the archivist or archaeologist or, you know, historian or, or curator um, that to me, you know, it might be about the kind of proliferation of images, but I think also has to do with other kind of um, losses of, of kind of political horizon in this moment um, that has caused us to kind of turn back in a way that can sometimes, you know, has can border on nostalgia and have all the kind of implications of that, and other times can revive certain, you know, really, you know, truly tenable moments, um, are historically or politically. Um, but I do think, in terms of your question around, you know, the, the status of museums um, in relationship to this material, I think, you know, it's it's incredibly. Um, particular and specialized, you know, to the history of that museum, specifically thinking about the studio museum or museums um, that, you know, um, are kind of committed to showing work by black artists. I think that there's a kind of um, duality that can exist between a total um, embrace um, uncritically of material by folk or outsider art, artists as truly black, which to me, you know, just in my own, postmodern anti-essentialist training just does not ring right in any way and I could never buy that. But at the same time, there's something about that that is so interesting to me that like people still are holding on to that and the kind of denial writ large to that also feels like it, you know, it makes the bad object of the, you know, of that thing more interesting to me. And so I think that there's something in there that maybe lies outside of the museum in some ways. I mean, I think that there's a way in which some, the status of some of these objects, if they are not our objects, should not, I don't think, reside in a museum in certain moments. I mean, I think that, you know, the kind of the, the crisis around the um, Hopi and Apache works that were repatriated, some of them, I think speaks to exactly that, the, the kind of different um, kind of uh, categories of objects which can be housed and should be housed in different locations. I mean, I think one way, you know, w what if there was a, a kind of 
embrace of the spiritual or, you know, um, the kind of religious connotation of certain forms of mid-century abstraction with, which has been done on different occasions, um, but kind of using uh, some, you know, some hybrid model of the museum that would em fully embrace itself as a non-secular, deeply, you know, partial site, as well as, you know, other sites that might be marked as more religious in their connotation. Um, and I think finally there's a way that the, the kind of artistic injunction that we're describing is not only in, does not only exist in, in the realm of images, but also exists in the realm of institutions. Um, so that there are a number of artists who have built out their own physical spaces. I mean, I think this is the, the work that you've charted is the way in which this doesn't only exist through, th you know, through things, but it exists through kind of larger phenomenological architectural experiences. And I guess both of these projects are about kind of architectures. Um, and to me, that points to the ways in which um, there are potentially other models institutionally that if we are fully to follow artists lead, might not be, might not lead us to the museum, but can validate the, all the functions and roles that museums can play elsewhere. Um, so that, you know, as much as I love the museum and my museum, I think you know a certain level of humility around the capacity of the museum effect, um, even if it's through negation, the things that it can't do is maybe in some ways the, the most benevolent or productive way to engage with this subject matter. I had a question for you. Is that allowed, Lynn? <laughs> well, you're here and all these people are here. It would be a shame not to hear you talk about this further. I guess I'm curious in terms of the status of um, feminism in, in this conversation, specifically thinking about Trockel as an artist who has been named through her kind of um, non-ideological stance in relationship to feminism, and you've discussed her work as a kind of, um, you know, uh, a, a way of critiquing and extending some of the aspirations of second wave feminism um, in relationship to her use of mechanized, um, you know, processes towards, you know, uh, objects that, w you know, once were handmade or had a sense of craft that were claimed as kind of authentic women's work. Um, and then your project working um, to kind of extend those sets of interests to um, the kind of breakdowns of various types of um, categories with relation to natural history and um, the cosmic. I guess within that project, you know, it, what is, wh where does a, a politic committed to an idea of feminism, however ambivalent or provisional that might be, fit within this conversation? Um, perhaps it most evidently fits in terms of uh, a refusal to acknowledge conventional categories and simply to try and follow an idea irrespective of the norms into which objects might fit. So if she, uh, when Rosemary thinks about creativity or creative expression or aesthetic um, decision making, it seems that it's very hard to, to make a boundary and say, well, humans do it, but other forms don't, or humans of a trained kind do it, but untrained humans don't. And one of the things that the exhibition explored was um, a continuous movement from trained to untrained to abstract paintings, which were made by Tilda, who is an orangutan that's been living for a long time in the Cologne Zoo. And Tilda's paintings are very interesting abstract paintings. If you didn't know her biography, you probably wouldn't pay um, undue attention to the fact that 
cheated them rather than a lesser known um, abstract gesturalist. And so I think there are ways in which, um, if one's thinking of crafts too, and one of the things that interests me is the way in which the G's Ben women uh, working in one particular very circumscribed geographical area in the US made the most remarkable quilts. And there are just extraordinary visual objects um, that when the exhibition went to the Whitney in around 2000, consistently critics said, this is amongst the greatest American art of the 20th century. And we thought, finally, great. The Whitney's showing it. We'll see quilts by these women hung with um, other forms of abstraction henceforth. There's never been another quilt shown in the Whitney since then. So on the one hand, you get this huge outpouring of recognition, and then the door shuts completely. And, and I'm interested in why this goes on and whether, in a sense, crafts are the final taboo. So what if, what if we look at Mike Kelly's many, many works with Afghans and textiles and look at Judith Scott and think about Rosie Lee Tonkins, a quilter from the West Coast, or um, Charlene von Heil, who's a painter who's looked at textiles. Why do we need to erect those differences? And I'm sympathetic to John. I think there are, to John's argument, there are dangers in simply removing the categories forever from all time and every occasion. But there are ways of playing with them and constructing different kinds of exhibitions. That, um, that allow things to be juxtaposed to examine a set of ideas which really have very little to do with biography or genre or, um, or the medium as such. So I think it's a matter of, um, and I would say this is a strategy that has as much to do with feminism as it does with any um, other ideological strand in, in the uh, in, in artistic practice and thinking of the last 30 years. Um, and I think that would be a way to, to move forward in some senses. So. In Italian, genre and gender are the same word. So ah. In French, too. You, you, so a, in a, a, a refusal of gender or genre would be the same. Ah, very nice. <laughs> Yes. Do you have a microphone? Oh, it's like cut off this guy. Uh, this has been such a wonderful and layered conversation. I happen to be a folklorist as well as a curator and very active in the art world. Um, as a textile artist in the 1980s, so I did see the show, Black Folk Art, and I uh, was on the panel at uh, New York State Council on the Arts where we were talking about um, folk arts as um, whether it was idiosyncratic art or whether, um, uh, or whether it was something else. And I have to come to the defense of folklorist by saying that uh, I think that it's generally accepted that there is indeed innovation in folk arts. Mm. Um, I think that uh, what you said about, uh, in the end, um, about be looking at the social and historical context and, uh, and also the community context in which uh, the art is grounded, I think that that's really important, especially when you're talking about visual, visionary artists. Yeah. Um, but I think with G's Bend, it's very interesting. Um, um, a 
fellow curator once said when we were talking about self-taught artists is that many of the artists were not self-taught. They were not just taught in the same academic tradition, which is also a tradition, but especially if you're talking about G's Bend, you know, the, the women of G's Bend grew up with an aesthetic uh, appreciation, with an aesthetic tradition of making the quilts, and uh, as did many of the people that you talked about. So I, I just wanted to get your comments on that. Yeah, I think my appreciation of the, of the understandings of folk art was deepened a lot by my uh, experience with the G's Bend show, because quilting is, is considered the, 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 the um, um, a paradigmatic example of folk art, and it is, it, it, and it's typically understood as a something that's that's uh, passed on from generation to generation. That's got a community dimension to it. Sometimes it's done cooperatively, and and so um, it, it's situated in in the definitely in the folk tradition. What I what I learned in G's Bend is that. That, in a, and that invention is prized even within the um, even within a fairly strict um, uh, uh, circle, and but also within the within uh, the specific medium. There's a there's a curious sort of cultural difference too that I learned, which is that um, often in uh, among white quilters, the the goal is to sort of follow the pattern sort of emulate the, the pattern that you see in a book. In G's Bend, the goal was to break the pattern. So was to, to sort of invent upon or, or, um, you know, or, or change the pattern in some way through substitutions of materials, colors, and so forth. So I actually learned a great deal about the sort of um, simultane, simultaneity of tradition and invention within the fairly narrow medium. And I think there's, there are some very interesting cultural differences that uh, actually relate to ideas about blackness. I mean, that, that there's a, um, there's a self-consciousness about invention among black quilters that you don't see so much among, among, among white quilters. It's a crude generalization, but, it's, uh, but it can be true. So I came to appreciate much more um, how nuanced this argument about invention is among folklorists. And, uh, and um, came to appreciate that, yes, indeed, there's a lot of room for invention, even within um, fairly s strict rules. Just to add one small thing, which is that the, the kind of technique of improvisation is one that's used a lot in describing the way that um, the kind of range of um, kind of reference points so that there's a set of traditions that one is able to draw, on, that the women of g draw on, and then a way in which it's articulated or expressed through the kind of selection um, from within the available palette. And, you know, to call that improvisation, I think, is important because, you know, not only does it kind of situate it within a history of kind of experimentation um, and performance, but I think also it speaks directly to, um, uh, you know, a certain kind of um, avant-garde that we've accepted to, you know, be a, a kind of strategy and technique, but is able to kind of locate it in another site um, fully. Hello. Uh, uh, I was hearing about the, the a very interesting phrase about uh, folk art don't have to necessarily get into the level of academic art in the opposite way. The academic art have to be in the same level of folk art. But I came from a country, I, I'm studying art in a country that has a lot of folk art and I don't understand yet why we necessarily have to have a difference between folk art and academic art. 
And that's my first question. And the second question is, is how does academic art has to necessarily improve in the in a way to get into that same level of work art so that the that the difference cannot exist anymore because I'm very aware of that difference. For example, in, I came from Peru and in my country some years ago it was like a big contest of sculpture and, and a folk artist that doesn't make art for galleries participate and he wants and some of my teachers which are the greatest artists in Peru have like a second opinion and doesn't mean that doesn't believe that that was possible for a folk artist to win a, 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 a that kind of of contest so that's that's why I have that question I mean, it's a, a huge question, and on many levels, it's a, the, the, you know, on one hand, um, I do believe in quality. You know, what I'm saying about that I'm interested in looking beyond distinctions of eye art and, uh, and also distinctions of taste, I do somehow believe in quality. I tend to prefer the word intensity, which maybe is a little cheesy, but um, I believe there can be an intensity uh, that is beyond good and evil. Uh, it's a slippery slope because then you could even end up justifying um, problematic expressions. Uh, you know, I often use a, a terrible examples. Would I include the drawings of Albert Speer in, in a Bayenno? Are they acceptable or not? Uh, you know, if you start not caring about taste and, and, and quality, then it can become more and more complicated. So um, at the same time, I believe in a notion of intensity that helps me distinguish between uh, uh, images that are rich in, in that are polysemic, to use a, a terrible uh, word, that they, they contain different readings, and I think those are the images that need to be preserved and they need to be looked at. Um, so, um, you know, in my ideal museum, which in a way was what the biennial was about, <clears throat> I can do, I can get rid of the problem of taste, but I don't want to get rid of the problem of intensity, or uh, I think also that show was very much about uh, let's look at these images that I think are better than the thousands of images we look at every day. And why are they better? Because they have a complexity that the majority of images don't have. Um, and that gets us also to the folk and to the formulaic. And uh, I don't have a straight answer, but there are formulaic works which are conservative and oppressive and uh, they don't make space for innovation or for complex thinking, and, and those I'm not interested in. Uh, so I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that's, um, that is where I draw the line, you know, where formulas become suffocating, uh, that I would dare say it's bad art, uh, where formulas allow for uh, innovation and for complexity, then I think the border between high art and low art is, uh, is more, um, it's thinner than we think.
I, that's, I mean, it's a very autobiographical answer, but that's the only way I can explain it to myself, I think. I'm afraid we're out of time. I'd like to thank the three, my three panelists. Thank the audience. And thank the Hoshon in particular, Milena Kalinowska, who orchestrated this.